We count it as a privilege, the opportunity to be together and to worship our God and to be a part of a church that is doing the things that God wants us to do. And if you're visiting with us, we are a group of people who are trying our, our hardest, being the most diligent that we can be in being the people that the Lord wants us to be. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where we're going to make very brief reference to here in just a second or two. We're very thankful for our visitors. We're thankful for our members. We're thankful for our, our parents, for those of you with little children that uh, sometimes endure long sermons and deal with difficult situations. Uh, we are glad that you are here and glad that you're a part of what we're trying to do in service to our God. Speaking of God, I want to talk about God today. You may say, well, that's no, no surprise. After all, that's what we do each and every time we come together on occasions like this. We talk about our Father. We talk about our God. We talk about His Son. We talk about the Spirit. And we want to make sure that we understand what He is and what He is not. Because an identity of God, the identity of our Lord, of our Savior, of our Father, of our Creator is absolutely essential to who we are as people of the Lord himself. So when you say God, and of course we guard ourselves with using the name of the Lord, we make sure that we do not use it in vain, but already this morning we have made plentiful references to our God in singing songs about him and praising him, in praying to God, in remembering God the Son on the cross and his resurrection, which we observe each and every Lord's day that we come together. And so already today, we have talked about our Lord a great deal. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15, there's one word that I might suggest you underline where the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And in chapters 12, 13, and 14, those are the three chapters where he's really focusing on spiritual gifts. It seems that we need to exercise some caution that we need to talk about God with an appropriate understanding of who he is, who he is not, what he is, and what he is not. And so Paul asks this question in the context of spiritual gifts, and he says, what's the conclusion then? He says, I'm going to pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Two different times the word understanding is used there, and two different times the word spirit is used there. So that everything that we do, whether it be the singing in which we engage, the partaking of the Lord's Supper, the praying, even our study together in an occasion like this needs to be done with an appropriate attitude and needs to be done with appropriate understanding. And I appreciate our brother Brian who began our services this morning by welcoming those of you that may be new to this community or new to this particular congregation. You may be confused by something that we do today. There may be some uh, concern about why did they say what they said or why did they do what they do? 
and we will count you as a friend, not as an enemy, nor as a nuisance, uh, if you say, well, explain that to me. Explain why you, you sang those songs, or why didn't you have a choir, or why was the sermon just based on the scriptures and not based on stories of men? We will give you an answer for those things because we're trying to do things in biblical, spiritual ways. There needs to be an understanding. And so when it comes to considering God and who he is and who he is not, we need to have an appropriate understanding of him. And that's what I want us to talk about today for just a few moments. I want us to look at a a couple of different things as to what God is not. Not as a matter of opinion. I didn't take a poll among the members or put it out there on Facebook. What do you think God is not? And what do you think God is? But I'm going to go directly to the scriptures themselves to figure out what we can understand. And first and foremost, we need to appreciate that God is not a human being. He is not human in the sense that he lives for a short period of time and then he dies. God is not created like we are created. He is not born in the way. Say, so, well, where did God come from? Well, he doesn't come from anywhere. He's always been. Well, how can you explain that? I can't. I don't have the capacity to understand fully that God is eternal. There is no beginning and there is no end to our God. He's not a human being like you, like me. And because we're human, we tend, it seems to me, to think of God in human terms. And that's not necessarily a bad thing on the surface when it comes to talking about our Father. That's a very familial term. When we talk about our God who is our parent, who is in heaven, as if there's a place where he can be or a place where he cannot be. God is everywhere at all times in all places. This is, again, beyond the scope of our understanding. But you would turn back to the book of Numbers, and you may be familiar with the book of Numbers. Uh, We recently had a very good and thorough study of the book of Numbers with our brother David Delk, who did a good job on that. But go back to chapter 23, and we're just going to read one or two verses here very quickly as we read what is written thousands of years ago. And it says God in verse 19 of Numbers 23. And this is true. This is a true statement. We believe this to be true. It says God is not a man that he should lie. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Nor a son of man that he should repent. See, God doesn't make mistakes that he needs to repent of. He has said and will not do Has he said and will not do? Of course not. Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse. Now, of course, we know from what we talked about about six to eight weeks ago, the context of this prophecy of Balaam here so many years ago. But let me suggest to you that this matters for so many reasons, in in part because of what John would say or John would record of Jesus when Jesus says, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is not a human being. But why does this matter? Let me suggest to you three things. Number one, God never lies. That's outlined in Numbers 23. It is also taught in Hebrews chapter 6. God is not going to tell you a lie. And when we read his word, we can take it to the bank. We know that it is real. We know that we can trust it. And that's why we depend on this word so very much. 
And, you know, it used to be, and perhaps still in certain circles or in certain places, that people who were familiar with the Lord's church as compared to a denomination would say they are a people of the book. That's a compliment. That when people say he's a man of the book, talking about the Bible, that's a compliment because we are dependent on the scriptures. Secondly, God doesn't make mistakes. That's what was outlined in chapter 23, verse 19 in the second section of the book of Numbers. God doesn't make mistakes. And we look at that and we say, well, of course he doesn't make mistakes. But you may or may not be familiar with the fact that there are people in the world who would suggest that indeed God has made a series of mistakes. For example, the church that we are a part of is God's plan B or plan C when things went awry at the cross of Calvary. We know that that's not the case at all. We know that in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 that all these things were a part of God's plan and part of his foreknowledge from before the beginning. And that then brings us to a third observation, and that is God doesn't lie, he doesn't make mistakes, and he has ultimate knowledge. Appreciate our brother reading from 1 John chapter 4. What a great passage to read from uh, talking about God's love. But if you back up just a page in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart because God knows some things. No, it says God knows all things. God knows everything. Now that is, as we'll talk a little bit later in our study, that is a comforting thing in the sense that God knows all of your challenges. He knows all of your difficulties. He knows all of your weaknesses. But it's a frightening thing that God knows all things because he knows our mistakes. He knows our regrets. He knows the fact that we do things that we realize after the fact I should not have done. So God is not human. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that God is not the author of confusion. And the world is a confusing place. Religion is a confusing thing to someone from a worldly point of view. Let's face it. When it comes to religion, when it comes to church choosing, it is a very confusing thing. You may be here this morning as new to the church Uh, You may be new to religion, you may be new to Christianity, and you may say, well, I'm still confused, and that's okay, that's not cause for alarm, we're going to do our very best to clear up some of that confusion as we continue on our journey today and in the future of the sermons that we have and the studies that we have here. Church choosing is a confusing thing. Can you imagine being someone, and I've talked to people who did not, quote, grow up on a pew. And they will say, at some point I realized I needed to get religion in my life. I needed to get church in my life. But I didn't really know where to begin. And so you, you look on Yelp for recommendations of churches within five miles of my house. Or you go to your neighbor and say, well, where do you go to church? Or maybe a family member or a friend. It would be a very daunting task if you had no knowledge of Scripture, no knowledge of what a church teaches or what their people were about, and you had to start going to church. That would be a very confusing or potentially confusing thing. But this is not what was in God's plan, nor was it in his design. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we read from chapter 15 or chapter 14 just a few moments ago. If you drop down to verse 33, there's a statement that is made by the Apostle Paul that it seems to me is very uh, uh, simple, but yet profound, where it says, God is not the author of confusion, but instead of peace as in the churches and with the saints. God says, I'm not here to confuse you. I'm here to, to give clarity and to grant you peace. Why then is religion so confusing? Why is it that church choosing is such a, a task? And you know, one of the things about the uh, pr- proliferation of churches is that there are, it seems always more churches available in the future than there ever were in the past. Even in my lifetime, there have been new churches that have been born, that have been created. But you remember back in Ephesians chapter four, how many churches did Paul speak of? He spoke of one. And when Jesus built the church, he did not build churches, he built the church. And so we want to do our very best to be a part of the church itself. Well, I can't think of a better passage than 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3 to help us really understand where all this confusion originated from. Now, this is a sad passage to me because it teaches us about the fact that there is this proliferation of churches. But he says, I am charging you, Timothy, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, I want you to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. I want you to convince, I want you to rebuke, and I want you to exhort. Do all three things with all long suffering and teaching. And the reason that this teaching, this preaching, this determination to defend the truth is so very important is verse 3. A time is coming when they, people, human beings like you and me, will not endure a sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, turn their ears from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. That's the reason why there are so many churches today is because at some point over the last 2,000 years, individuals have gotten upset with the simplicity of the gospel plan and of the church as it is rendered in the New Testament. And so someone says, well, I don't like this particular concept of the church, so I'll change it. Some say, I don't like the idea that uh, there are elders. I don't want elders in a local church. Or some would say, well, I I want there to be elders, but I want only one elder. Or some would say that I I want there to be uh, a doctrine that is open and fluid as opposed to something that is constricted and concise as labeled in the New Testament pattern. God did not create that confusion And so when you run into people in the world who say, I'm just confused as to what to believe and what I should be doing, God didn't create that. Thirdly, God is not mocked. That word mocked is a very powerful word. As humans, we are sometimes tricked. We are sometimes deceived. 
we are sometimes mocked to believing something that is not. But turn to Galatians chapter 6. You knew we were going to go there. And we're going to read just two or three verses here in one of Paul's earliest letters, if not the earliest of his letters. In the church at Galatia, or the churches of Galatia, he's writing to them and he's trying to get them to understand the difference between the old and the new, what was left behind versus what's moving forward, and the place that Jesus plays in it. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 6, he says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And then do not, be conce- do not be deceived. I guess we're all conceived, right? Do, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know, to me, Again, going back to the point that I made at the outset of our study, this is in some ways an exciting concept. You're telling me that God isn't mocked, he's never deceived, and he knows all things? That's exciting to me, and it's exciting to me because God sees that I'm trying to do what's right. He sees the efforts I'm putting forth to be faithful to him. He sees that when no one else knows of the good that I'm doing, he sees the good that I'm doing. And that's exciting to me. But this is, as I also highlighted on the flip side, a frightening thing. Are you telling me that God cannot be tricked or deceived or mocked in the way that humans are? And that is exactly correct. So God will see us if we try to fake it. You know, we can fake people out. We can trick people and cause people to be mocked around us. We can do that to our brothers and sisters. We can do that to those in the world We can do that to our family and to our friends, but God says, I can see through you. I see your sincerity or I see your insincerity. And that's a frightening thing. But again, it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of a living God if we're unprepared, Hebrews chapter 10. But rather, it is something that is exciting to know that God is going to be there to reward us for the good that we have done by his grace and by his mercy. And that brings us to a fourth thing, that God is not the God of the dead. While some teach that after life on earth, there's no afterlife, the Bible teaches differently. There are individuals, and in fact, our brother Brian talked about this in our Bible study this morning when talking about the Stoics and the Epicureans. There are groups of people who will teach that there's no afterlife. That when a person dies, that's it. So you eat, you drink, you be merry, for tomorrow you die, to borrow from that phrase, as is some is taught. But in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 32, we see that that is not the case in talking about some Old Testament characters and some Old Testament examples. So Matthew chapter 22 is, of course, near the end of the gospel account of Matthew. And so we're nearing the end of the life of Jesus on this earth. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's a a quote repeatedly going back to uh, the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. And he says, God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. Well, does that mean then that when a person ceases to live, that when we die, and we know that it is appointed for all men to die once, and after this is the judgment, Hebrews chapter 9, does that mean that God doesn't see them? 
Well, no, that's not the context of what's happening here. What is being taught here is that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is that Jesus proves that there is an afterlife, that there is, as we talked about in the book of Acts on those 30-some occasions, a resurrection from the dead that you and I are participants of and that you and I will be a part of. Well, those are some things that God is not. But let me just spend just 10 or 15 minutes talking about some things that God is. Because the Bible doesn't just go through and say, God is not this and God is not that and God is not that. And he says, and leave it up to you to figure it out. He tells us what God is, some of his qualities, some of his characteristics, and some of the truisms about our God. And first and foremost, God is merciful. And we need to never, ever, ever underestimate the fact that God is merciful and God is gracious. I think that in some ways we as members of the Lord's church are hesitant or we have been hesitant in times past to talk about God's grace and to talk about God's mercy because so many of our friends who grow up in denominations talk so much about grace and talk so much about mercy. I'm actually having a conversation with a a young man right now online about uh, baptism and it's ascensionist for salvation. He says, but what about Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 where it talks about God's grace? And my response to him is absolutely without God's grace, there is no hope for us. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that we need to do in order to please our God. But the fact is, is I would argue that the very identity of God himself is that he is a God associated with mercy. And we're going to look at Ephesians 2 in just a second. But I want to go all the way back to a study that we engaged in about six months ago in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 31, an Old Testament passage where it says, the Lord your God is a merciful God. Now, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, the Lord your God is a merciful God. You remember that this is in many ways a a reintroduction or a review of who God was to this additional generation of individuals who did not necessarily have the familiarity with the first rendering of the law. And so Deuteronomy, which means second giving of law or second law, is not so much a second law, it's a second reading or uh, reiteration of that law. He says, God is merciful. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. That's a beautiful passage and one worthy of memorization or at least certainly remembering from time to time. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul talks about the, the importance of grace and mercy as well. He says, God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Remember, think of it from this perspective, that to fully appreciate God's mercy, we should look at mercy through man's eyes. And I think we do that, generally speaking, as Christians. But what I mean by that simply is this. If I were God, how would I react to those who are involved in sin? I might be a little harsher than God. Now, God is a harsh judge because, as we'll talk in just a moment, he is a jealous God. And he will destroy 
And as we prayed this morning that God has saved us from a fire of hell. But God is merciful. And even in spite of the mistakes that we have made, even in spite of all the disobedience that we have rendered and all the disappointments that we have given him and the heartache we have caused him, he says, if you change and you ask for forgiveness as one of my children, I'll grant you my mercy. That's the God that we are privileged and that we love to serve. Speaking of love, I appreciate Brother Mitch taking us to 1 John and stealing uh, my passage for this morning. But God is love, and we must never underestimate that. That doesn't mean that God is not a God of tough love, and that sometimes he says you need to grow up, you need to change, you need to do things differently. But God is a loving God. And of the, of the various ways that we go about describing him, I think this may be one of the most powerful. And I appreciate, uh, we won't go back and reread 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, but I appreciate the beauty of those passages, it's some of the most beautiful passages, and the fact that they have now been turned into uh, songs in the last 50 years, 100 years, about God is love. Come, let us all unite to sing that God is love. And then we sing that God is love. God is love. My God, my God is love. Those are beautiful songs to sing because it reminds us of the God that we serve. And consider this in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, perhaps the, one of the three most beloved passages in all the New Testament where we find it weddings, where we find at even funerals where we're trying to comfort one another, where we find at occasions where we're trying to describe God, we say that God is love. And so if you read 1 Corinthians 13 and you read it a little bit differently, it says God suffers long in verse 4. It says God is kind. God doesn't envy. God does not parade itself. God is not puffed up. Drop down to verse 7. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things because God never fails. You may say, well, that's not what it said. It said love never fails, but you get my point. After all, 1 John chapter 4 tells us that God is love. And so everything that is the essence of love as outlined in these holy scriptures is the, out, is, is the outline of God himself. And so we, as Christians, we are saints. We are to work at mastering this agape love, but we'll never fully succeed in that endeavor. That's one of those frustrating things. I want to be loving like God. That's a great goal to have. And we ought to applaud one another, but you'll never be as loving as God. Going back to the first point that we made just a couple of moments ago, we'll never be as merciful as our God, but we should certainly try to do so. God is merciful, God is love. But as I mentioned just a few moments ago, we need to appreciate the fact that the God that we serve is a very jealous God. And that's not a bad thing. We don't need to apologize for that. Say, well, you know, God is jealous, and that's one of the things we don't want to talk about, but we have to. No, God is jealous. And we, we say that with uh, all uh, seriousness and understanding. God does not work himself into some sort of a, a pantheon of gods where he says, well, I'll be there along with other gods that exist. And as long as you worship me, along with some other things, that would be fine. That's an argument of Satan. 
Satan's argument is that you can worship God and put him in your life as long as you worship other things as well. No, that's not the case at all. God is first and foremost. In fact, I was listening to someone speak just a few months ago, and I thought he made a really good point in that the, the actual concept of the word priority is demands that there's only one. Now, I'm not saying that it's incorrect or inappropriate that we sometimes talk about priorities, but by definition, a priority is something that is number one so that there's nothing else besides it. So God is the priority. It's not a matter of he's one of our priorities. He is the priority. And I think there's something to be said for that. And so in Exodus chapter 20 and verse three, what does God say? You shall have no other gods beside me. At the very introduction of who God is on the mountain of Sinai, through all that smoke and haze and thunder, God says, no other gods besides me. And we see that repeated. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy, again, to this second uh, iteration of, of, the, of the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read from there just a, a couple of minutes ago. But go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, this time in verse 24, where it says, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is what? He is a jealous God. Drop down to chapter 6, verse 15 of the same book. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest you anger the Lord your God and he be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Just a few pages over in your Bibles in chapter 10 and verse 17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Our God is awesome. He is jealous. And we need to appreciate that even though we don't go to the temple courtyard today where there are false idols, we may not go to the great city of Athens and find altars to the unknown God as we talked about in Acts chapter 17 today. Idol worship is still as prevalent today as it has ever been in the course of humanity's history. Idol worship is here. It is not going anywhere. And of course, what does Paul say? He says, if you covet, you are guilty of idolatry. If you put anything before God, you are guilty of idolatry. And so I think we can all say, as much as we may not like to admit it, that we are all or have all at some point been idol worshipers. We may have never gone and bowed down to something in a physical sense. But we have put our jobs or our families or our friends or our income or our our activities or something in front of the Lord. And that prevalence is something that needs to be rid of in our lives because God is jealous. We only serve him. He is not a priority. He is the priority in our lives. And let me suggest to you fourthly and finally that God is faithful. I've not been to Old Faithful. Some of you have been to Old Faithful in Wyoming or other places where there are geysers that you can watch and see for when it comes about. But the idea of Old Faithful is this geyser that it just continues to spout every so often and you can count on it. 
But more than a creation of God to be counted on is God himself. God is faithful. He will never disappoint you. He will never disappoint me. And the thing is, is men disappoint us. Even the best of intentions, the best of men disappoint us. God never fails. I may say, I'll be at your house at a certain time to help you with a certain project. It's not going to be home repairs because you call Wendy for that. I may say that I'm going to meet you here at the building so that we can study at a certain time. And I have the best of intentions, but something may happen. I may get into a car accident on the way and I may not be able to be here at that time. You see, you can't really depend on a human being. We can to a degree, but things come up. Accidents happen. People die. Plans change. Storms exist. And things transpire wherein I can't make it to the appointment that I said I was going to make it to. Well, when it says there is an appointment for death... In Hebrews chapter 9, that is an appointment that may not be on your calendar written down, but you're going to keep it. Because the fact is, is God is faithful to his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13, it says, God is faithful to provide us a way of escape from not just some temptations, but every temptation that comes our way. And encouraging enough is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where it says that God is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. And that faithfulness of God was exhibited in where our brother Roger took us in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where the faithfulness of God was the point that the angels were referencing. And if you would, appreciate the fact that this, it seems to me, unless I'm mistaken, is the only yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy of God. The idea of Jesus coming back, that is a prophecy, that is a prediction, that is a promise. That is something that we can, again, take to the bank. It's yet to be fulfilled. We haven't seen that happen yet. Now, there are some in the religious world who would say that the Lord has already returned, that he did so some 1900 plus years ago, but we know that's, that's false doctrine and we know that that's not true. Jesus has yet to return. But the fact is, is when God says, and the angel said, his spokesman, he's going to return in, in like fashion and the earth and the works within it will be burned up as taught by Peter in his second epistle. Those are things that we know about God because God is faithful and we can trust our God. God is faithful to save you, and he's faithful to save me. There won't be any person who falls through the cracks of God's mercy. Think about that for a moment. Nobody will fall through the cracks of God's mercy. God says, I'll be merciful to 99.9% of the people. But there might be a few of you that I missed just because I didn't notice you. That's not the way it works. God says, I will sift through the wheat and the tares as outlined in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll find those who are righteous, and those who are righteous, those who are saved by my grace, they will be individuals who will go home to heaven. Those who are not, I will say, depart. I do not know you, because I do not know you. And so it's time for us to get to know him today. So knowing what he is not and knowing what he is, is it seems to me elementary to who we are as Christians as well as who we are as disciples who follow Jesus, as well as those who teach his message to others. 
If you do not know God today, it may be that you need to sit down with someone who does know him. Not that we have all the answers, but we have all the answers. And we have all the answers to study from, and we'd be happy to study with you. So if you're not a Christian, you've never been baptized, have you since washed away? You say, well, I, I want to know more about this. That's music to our ears. You will not bother us by saying, will you sit down with me sometime and, and talk about these things a little bit further in detail? Absolutely, we will. We'd be happy to help you. If you are at a point in your life where you say, I've heard enough. I'm ready to live my life in service to God going forward. We're happy to baptize you this very hour. And if you are a Christian and you are not faithful to God in the way that he's been faithful to you, uh, you have been involved in idolatry. You have been involved in immorality. You have been involved in not making him the number one priority. But the Bill talked about this in his uh, talk Wednesday evening. It may be that you just need to privately pray during that song and say, I'm going to do better and I'm repenting and God will forgive you. But it may be that it's done something to the reputation or potentially to the reputation of the church. And you care about the church and you care about your brothers and sisters and or, and or uh, you want help to grow stronger. We're happy to pray for you and to pray with you. We can help you in any way. Let us know while together we stand, while we sing.